hair loss. From a medical and psychological perspective, it is so much more important than we may appreciate. Listen as we discuss medical therapy for hair loss for both men and women and how we can improve our patient's self-esteem and much more. I'm Dr. Stephen Davis, and today my guest is Dr. Paul Rose, a renowned board-certified dermatologist who specializes in all aspects of hair restoration from surgical as well as non-surgical therapies. He is past president of the International Society of Hair Restoration and the past president of the International Society of Laser and Cosmetic Surgery. He's going to be speaking with us today on several topics that have become just hugely exciting in the whole realm of hair transplantation as well as medical therapies for hair loss. Welcome, Dr. Rose. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So one of the things that I wanted to go over with you from the beginning is could you give us a little idea of where we've come from in terms of hair restoration from a medical or therapeutic standpoint over the years? I'd be happy to do that. I, I think that when we look at hair restoration, it's been a topic of concern since uh, probably before biblical times. People have always been concerned about losing hair and trying to figure out ways to alleviate the problem. You know, I think that's where we get many of our snake oil uh, potions and lotions that people have come up with. But I'm happy to say that we do have some medications that are very successful and other therapies that are very successful in trying to stop hair loss and in many cases actually grow hair. So I would say that probably the major breakthrough for male pattern hair restoration came back in the 80s when we discovered that minoxidil, which was originally used for hypertension, actually seemed to help people grow hair. And that was actually found by accident. So minoxidil, or Rogaine as it's called uh, in, the t in the trade name, that product has been shown to be successful in slowing down hair loss and helping to regrow hair in a significant number of patients. Uh, the amount of hair that it re regrows is perhaps not dramatic, perhaps about 20% of uh, an increase in hairs, but nevertheless it is a positive step. From there, I would say that the next major breakthrough was the recognition of something called dihydrotestosterone as being a key factor in causing hair loss. And so when we found out that you could lower DHT, as it's called, and DHT is a byproduct of testosterone, male hormone, when we found out that we could lower that with a drug called finasteride, we really had on our hands a major breakthrough. The finasteride works by blocking one of the pathways to DHT, and subsequently that product uh, has been utilized as something called Propecia, which was also used, interestingly enough, for prostate enlargement. And that product has certainly shown to be very effective in slowing down hair loss, and a significant number of patients get a marked increase in hair growth. Along with that kind of product, there is something called dutasteride as opposed to finasteride, and instead of blocking one of the pathways to DHT, dutasteride actually blocks both of the pathways to DHT. Now that drug uh, is used off-label by some people 
and has not been approved for hair loss um, by the FDA. It is a drug also used for prostate enlargement. And then because we are a very innovative society, you know, we've also uh, been very enamored with the idea of lasers. And interestingly enough, we're finding out that low-level light lasers, lasers that function at a wavelength of about 660 nanometers, uh, may also help to reduce hair loss and in some instances regrow hair. Now, Dr. Rose, let me ask you a question. When we're dealing with some of those medications like Rogaine or Propecia, is there an age range for a patient that would be coming in, let's say, to see you where you'd say, you know, this isn't going to work well in your age classification? I think that's an excellent question, and it does come up quite a bit. And what we have found is that with many of these medications, for older males, males in excess of 50 years of age, the effects are probably not as dramatic as they are for the younger patient. And in fact, that also causes us to encourage young patients to be diagnosed as early as possible and get onto a lot of these therapies as early as possible with also recognizing that there are possible side effects from these medications. How young would you say a normal patient could be that could get started on some of these oral medications or topicals? Many of the patients that we see are young males who are generally in the range of about 18, 19 years of age and are beginning to lose their hair. Occasionally, we have an unfortunate circumstance where we'll even see young men who are 14, 15 years of age who are losing their hair, and then it becomes very difficult to consider what kind of therapy to put them onto. But in fact, uh, in some instances, some doctors will get them started on a drug like finasteride, but that has to be done very carefully. I see. When it comes to the low-level laser light, is there a, uh, an age classification where you'd say it's going to work better in some than others? Again, I think that it helps probably more in younger patients. And what we seem to find is that if the area is, shall we say, smooth-bald, it probably isn't going to have much of an effect. What we'd like to see is hairs that are decreased in size, what are called vellus hairs or hairs that are miniaturizing, because we believe that the action of the laser light is such that we can bring back some of these hairs back into the growing phase. If they're already too far gone, it doesn't seem like the laser works as well. So again, the younger population probably does best with these kinds of treatments. So, Dr. Rosa, I'm going to switch gears a little bit on you and talk about women who are presenting to you with hair loss. What are some of the treatments that you've been using medically for them? Well, that's certainly a, a different um, category in, in terms of even diagnosis because one of the things we have to be very careful about with women, and they are increasingly uh, being seen by doctors like myself because quite a large number of women do have hair loss, is to make the correct diagnosis that this truly is female pattern alopecia because women can often have other metabolic and immune problems uh, that are not as clearly uh, delineated as they are in males. So in terms of treatment for females, again, we have to be correct in our diagnosis, but assuming that it is female pattern hair loss, some of the medications that women can use would include something like uh, Rogaine or Minoxidil. 
the FDA has approved a 2% solution for women for minoxidil, but many doctors will go off-label and utilize the 5% solution or foam that's available for men. For some women, uh, an anti-androgen like uh, spironolactone can be very helpful. Uh, when we use a drug like that, we have to be careful about potassium. Uh, occasionally, we'll have to alter hormones, and the use of estrogens uh, can be helpful, making sure that their testosterone levels are appropriate. Um, there are other drugs that are anti-androgen drugs, like flutamide and cyproterone acetate, uh, have been found to be helpful. There are some anecdotal reports of using finasteride, again, a drug called Propecia, uh, in women, but there's a great debate about how effective that is. There are some physicians who feel it can work, and it may be that there's a subset of women who do respond to finasteride, but certainly we want to be careful not to give it to women of childbearing age because it could have an adverse effect on the fetus. Uh, most recently, you may have heard about a drug called bimatoprost, which is also called Latisse, and that uh, medication is used for enhancing eyelash growth. The same company that manufactures that uh, medication is trying to develop a product that might be useful for male and female pattern hair loss. That's fantastic. If you just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Davis, and my guest today is Dr. Paul Rose, world-renowned dermatologist. And we're talking about all aspects of hair restoration and actually maintaining your hair so that it you know, you can slow down the process. Uh, Dr. Rose, another question that I wanted to kind of throw in for uh, patients that are really seeking the whole milieu, if you will, of how to treat this, is once you've started these patients, let's say we'll go back to men, once you've started these patients on a treatment regimen, how long would you let them be on the treatment regimen before you would say, we can move now towards the surgical aspect of things. Again, an excellent question and probably the most frequent question I get from patients in terms of how long do I have to be on this and do I have to be on this the rest of my life? And my sarcastic reply is I don't know how long you're going to live, so um, that doesn't always go over well. But in any case, uh, I usually tell patients I'd like to see them using a, a, one of these medications for at least six months to a year. Certainly for minoxidil, we want to see it for six months to a year, and certainly for finasteride, six months to a year. Occasionally, we'll have patients who are, shall we say, um, antsy about the treatment, and they would like to proceed to a surgical alternative uh, more quickly sometimes than I would uh, like. And I, again, I try to discourage them. I much prefer that people try a non-surgical route before we have to uh, do something invasive. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you feel that way? Because I love that approach to, you know, plastic surgery and those kinds of procedures to begin with. But I would love to hear your reasoning behind that. Yes, I, I think that as much as I love surgery, and I suspect you do too, I also realize that it comes with certain risks and that it is a procedure that requires a lot of time, there's use of anesthesia. Not everybody is well suited for a surgical procedure, and I prefer that we try to first use all the alternatives that we can before we have to do something, again, invasive. Will these patients 
give you some sort of an idea of the surgical procedure that you'd like to choose once they've been on it for, let's say, six months to a year based on their response to the therapy? Will that kind of, you know, lean you in one direction versus another? I think, I think it does. I think that when you have uh, people who perhaps are responding in one part of the scalp but are not, not responding in another part of the scalp, we may be able to uh, concentrate on the area where there's more severe hair loss. Because, again, I also want to try to limit the amount of, of grafts that are necessary to do the hair restoration surgically, not only because of expense, but because it's a, a limited resource that we're dealing with in the donor area. So I would like to use as little of it as possible, and I always have to be thinking about what is the possibility for future hair loss, and can we be prepared to deal with that if the patient does have that, assuming that, again, we don't have any miracles that happen in the next five or ten years. When these patients are presenting, and they may seem to be a little over-anxious for the surgery, are there certain things that you have them start to do with just wearing their hair a certain way or getting it cut a certain way that would get them ready for either uh, the medical approach or the surgical approach? I think with women we have greater latitude because women uh, can often style their hair in a way, if they have creative stylists, in a way that men cannot. It's much harder for men to hide their areas of hair loss uh, as compared to women. So the alternatives with men are less. With women, I do encourage them to try to seek out a good hairstylist who can provide them with uh, means to cover areas of concern and then see after that, and they're used to a hairstyle that they really like, where are the most important areas that we need to cover in terms of doing a surgical procedure? I understand. That's terrific. Uh Give me a couple of statistics, just for the physicians and people out there listening to this, about hair loss for men and hair loss for women. Well, surprisingly, um, a large number of women actually do experience hair loss. And the statistics vary to some extent, but I think a reasonable statistic is that about 37% or 40% of all postmenopausal women will experience some degree of significant hair loss, particularly in the frontal parietal areas. Uh, believe it or not, 13% of premenopausal women will also experience uh, significant hair loss, and there are uh, numbers that exceed those in other studies. For men, we generally think that at least 45 to 60% of men uh, between the ages of 40 and 40, 49 have significant hair loss. Uh, what would be considered at least a Norwood type 3 pattern. It's really something for everybody to listen into because I'm sure from a family physician standpoint all the way out, there's a lot of patients that present with uh, these concerns, and it's wonderful to know that there's an expert out there with the answers as uh, you are, Dr. Rose. Yes, I, I think you, you know, you of all people know how important self-esteem is and, and how it it's really sets the direction of one's life. So I, I think the, the procedures that people discount as being just pure vanity go far beyond that in terms of importance for how people do in our society. We've been speaking with Dr. Paul Rose, renowned expert on hair restoration and all uh, aspects of uh, hair loss. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Davis. You've been listening to ReachMD. Thank you.